You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Rhino. So this is Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. Perfect. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I knew it was coming. Well, I I thought it was coming, but I wasn't totally sure, and then it happened, so then I was sure. (laughs) What's up, everybody? (laughs) You know, actually, before we dive in, I'll I'll just do our quick thing that we like to do. If if you're interested in supporting the show, we could always use your support. You may do so by going to our Patreon page. We've got some tiered levels, and been trying to work out a, a new system for making it even more, even more better, even more worth even, your time. Even more better. <laughs> exactly. And make it uh, totally worth your time. And I learned about this Discord server thing we can use to potentially chat with our Patreon supporters, give a little forum going, which I think would be really neat as well. So we're looking into all of that stuff, going to really try and take advantage of what's available through that platform. If you don't want to spend any, any dough to support us, that's totally cool too. Um, you can tell somebody about us and be like, hey, you should listen to this podcast because it's great. Or it's okay, and you might like it. <laughs> Anything you think might sell it appropriately. And of course, you can always just um, subscribe, uh, leave a couple comments, reviews, that sort of thing. Just um, spread the word in whatever capacity you're willing to do so. Cue the, the bird word song. Bird, bird, bird. Bird is the word. Yeah, that one. <laughs> Can't tell it's early in the morning at all, can you? <laughs> right. And the fact that it sounds like I'm trying to be better at what? To, to Ryan pulling out random songs, probably from Family Guy, as I'm guessing where you got that reference. Yeah, I've been up since 2.30 in the morning. It's been a long it's day. R- it's ridiculous. All right, today on Why We Do What We Do, Abraham, uh, we're starting off with a little bit of a different story than we're used to, right? Yeah, and we're gonna. I'm going to tell the first part, just the first part, because then we're going to give a little more information, and then I'm going to come back and finish the story once we understand the context a little better. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, so this story takes place, if you will, in 2005. There is a child whose name was Abu Baker Tariq Nadama. He is only five years old and has been diagnosed with autism, maybe autism spectrum disorders, although that wouldn't have been the title of that exact diagnosis at the time. He was a British boy, and he came to the U.S. with his family because they were seeking medical treatment for their the child's autism diagnosis. Again, at this time, although there was much more information that was available, much more was known about effective treatments for autism, this was still, you know, 14 years ago now at this point, that, and maybe the extent to which this was known was less than it is now. We'll just suffice it to say that. Okay, so this family took their son to a clinic in Pennsylvania called the Advanced Integrative Medicine Center. And they took him there specifically to receive a type of therapy called chelation therapy. And this was his third time going through a round of this chelation therapy. Cool? Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm going to pause the story there so we can now jump into what this chelation therapy thing is. All right, rewind time now. We got to go back into the history, uh, into the vaults, right? So where did this start? With a guy named Alfred Warner, a Swiss chemist. He provided the foundational understanding of chelating, a process that was later developed into this chelation therapy. 
Right. And it's important to understand that he was simply trying, he, he was a chemist, as you said, he was simply trying to understand how this particular process worked. And he sort of, he theorized how chelation might work and then was able to actually prove how it worked. And so this is around post-World War One. And it's a treatment to diminish the effects of poisonous gas exposure. So he was really doing this to help people who had been in contact with a particularly dangerous substance, right? So he was simply describing the process by which these chemicals would perform a certain action in a way that was maybe, it just wasn't really well understood. As a matter of fact, it had kind of only been hypothesized at that point. And he proposed the model by which it could work. And then he tested it out, was able to get it to work. And again, like this, this was back in like World War One era. So we're talking early 1900s. His orientation to this, his intention of this had nothing to do with treating mental health in any way, right? Mostly he was interested in chemistry, but the applied version of what he was doing was simply to address um, issues that had come up around these things like being exposed to poisonous gas, and as we'll see later a little bit, uh, heavy metals. Not like, you know, Metallica, heavy metals, but the elements, heavy, heavy metals. <laughs> All right, so in 1983, there was the formation of the American Board of Chelation Therapy. And this the intention of this board, as it was formed, was to, quote, certify doctors who give chelation therapy, end quote. And so this was a group of people who were using this now just as a type of therapy, generally speaking, and promoting it in therapeutic context. All right. So the history is documented a little bit more on chelation.me. If anyone's interested in going, it looks like they update at major milestones just on their homepage. If anyone wants to check it out, there's a whole board certification process. It popped up on Quackwatch as well, which I don't know. Can you describe that site real quick, uh, Abraham? Yeah, I mean, Quackwatch is a skeptical, or mostly, for, for the most part, a skeptical website that is oriented toward identifying sort of pseudosciences and pseudotherapies and, and looking out for charlatans and maybe even just misinformed people who are pushing non-evidence-based procedures, often and maybe only for medical uh, treatments, although they probably would tackle anything that uh, pushes some kind of health or I don't know, any, anything at all. So I, I'm sure that goop is all over quackwatch.com. <laughs> yeah. So with that, you can go dive into it more if you want to in the history, but we're, we're going to dive straight into how it's supposed to work. So chelation is simply the name of the chemical process by which ions or molecules bond to metal ions. So the ligands that form on the bonds are called uh, chelants, chelators, or chelating agents, hence the name chelation. Right. And I think it's also worth pointing out for those who are interested and maybe don't know, like chelation is sort of spelled similar to like chemistry. So you've got C-H-E. Um, and so that, that is where you get the, the sound from and chelation. And just to, for those who wanted to learn more about it and look it up. So the rest of it spelled the way you would imagine elation to be spelled. <laughs> um, <laughs> although elation is certainly not the term I would use to describe this procedure. Yeah. This process naturally occurs, right? Yeah. Um, but it's us, I guess, artificially like making it occur at this point when we start turning into therapy. Well, it's sort of capitalizing on an existing process that exists in nature to use it in a very particular way. You know, it's sort of like 
things will heat up when they're on fire, but you can specifically create a fire to cook something, you know? Yeah, so when this is done in these medical settings, it's a deliberate action that is taken on by some kind of therapist, and they introduce the special chelating agent that's intended to form these bonds to metal ions in the body. And through this process, the toxic metals uh, are removed through these chelating agents. And so this can, it can be injected into the veins, into the muscles. Um, it can actually be swallowed depending on the type of chelating agent being used. I think Did in like not. a pill form. Did not know that. Yeah, I, that was something I learned. I thought it was just an injection. But um, but yeah, I found that when I was doing the research that they could, they, it could also be ingested orally. And, and so the basic process then is like chelating agent enters your body through any of those methods. It binds to these toxic metals and then they're excreted in some sort of fashion. Yes, exactly. That some somehow once it bonds those metals, that it will that will therefore then be pushed out of your body. There are six commonly used chelating agents. I'm not going to list them all here. So these agents are organic and inorganic compounds that are capable of binding to these metal ions. And we'll get into why you might do this to your body. I think I'll, uh, it's worth pointing out here that. Again, this this process can occur in a lot of different settings. We're talking about specifically chelating agents being entered into a or an organic body, you know, a life form. So, with the context of understanding a little bit more about chelation and and how it works and what it sort of does, let's get back to our story about Abu Baker, that five year old child that we introduced at the beginning of this episode. So, the point is that. They were there to try and find a medical treatment for this child's autism. And they were there for their third round of this. And I think, you know, it might be tempting to say, well, if you had to do it three times, then clearly this isn't effective. But that's not really fair because there are lots of treatments that take a lot of repeated exposure and doses to get there. Yeah. So, you know, it's fine to say that this happened three times. The question is, is this working? How would we know? So... Did it work? Quite simply, it did not. No. In fact, what happened on this third round is that this poor child went into cardiac arrest and died. And this was specifically and demonstrably as a result of the chelation therapy, quote-unquote therapy, that he received. So, why would somebody do this to themselves or to their child? I mean, to start, it's... A legitimate, it started with a legitimate use, right? Like, yeah, the original idea was that this was needed as, or this was a way to help when you had these heavy metal poisonings, like lead or mercury poisonings, and you needed a way to excrete those from the body to help the person survive. Yeah, exactly. And it it was totally legitimate, totally worked. It is an evidence-based procedure that is effective at removing like lead poisoning and other metal poisoning. And when people are exposed to toxic amounts of metal for whatever reason, often different jobs. I actually wonder, I don't know, I didn't look this up, but I'm curious if like people who are exposed to a lot of like coal dust and doing coal mining and stuff, if, uh, if that would count, I really don't know. Um, just cause there's mercury comes from burning coal. So that'd be my thought as well. I'm Googling. Cool. <laughs> Thanks. So with respect to this therapy that is used to specifically treat heavy metal poisoning that occurs, 
there, this is the only evidence-based practice that is um, available for chelation therapy because anybody can go get this if they have metal poisoning. It's it's a great you know it's the way to go basically to deal with that. It does effectively remove lead and other heavy metals from the body. Okay, now where this gets complicated is that a lot of the people who have pushed this idea of chelating ther of chelation therapy and using chelating agents and the, the proponents of this, they have made some pretty wide claims about what their chelating agents, what this chelation process can do. And so they've claimed that it can be used to treat a huge variety of different diseases and ailments, and oftentimes that in and of itself is kind of a red flag. The sort of one-size-fits-all therapy is like... You know, there are no panaceas out there. Yeah. So what they've claimed is things like that chelation therapy can help to treat cancer, heart disease, clogged arteries, peripheral vascular disease, and then getting into some even weirder ones like Alzheimer's disease, multiple sclerosis, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, Parkinson's, diabetes, and of course, as we mentioned earlier, autism. Now... Important to note here, just so that we have covered our bases, there is no evidence to suggest that it effectively treats these things. Zero. And, you know, yeah. <laughs> Completely zero evidence. And you In know, fact, I like, to say, it could actually like cause a significant host of problems we're going to get into soon, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And I, and I want to say, just because this comes up a lot, where people will say very diplomatically, there's no evidence. And saying that there's no evidence makes it sound like it's possible we just don't have the evidence yet. I want to make sure, like, we can come out maybe on this podcast because we're not, you know, we're not pushing this as like an evidence-based professional publication of some kind yeah. that has been gone through a peer review process and just say that what we mean by no evidence is that this is completely wrong. Yes, completely, completely ineffective, wrong. completely wrong, and uh, like as we see, like the side effects are unreal. Yes. So so let's get into the the autism portion of this. And wrong is is I would choose to use stronger words here, but we try and keep this a family friendly show. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, uh, all right, autism. All right. So as we mentioned, Abu Baker was diagnosed with autism. Autism spectrum disorders is now the neurological disorder and the classification that you would receive or someone would receive if they were diagnosed with this now. And the idea is that there's a range of behavioral and social impairments. Now, Andrew Wakefield in what, 2005? 90, I think it was 96 was the original study. When was it redacted? Let me think about that. So it came out, I think that the all of the evidence about the wrongdoing and that research and the proving it false actually occurred within just a couple of years of the original publication. Okay. But I don't think it was fully redacted until about 2010. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was on the books for a while. So but... Andrew Wakefield to truncate this published a study suggesting that, uh, with, with pretty good evidence at the time, and I'm using evidence in air quotes there, that mercury was apparently a contributor and like strong source of what was apparently causing autism. So there was a host of uh, different, what, publications, hype, media, like everybody kind of flocking in a sense to try to see how this could uh, affect treatment because we still have yet to have any sort of treatment 
that is uh, quickly, uh, this is very easy to quickly deliver, right? To someone diagnosed with autism. Yeah. Well, and also I think part of this was the intention of uh, developing a preventative measure by avoiding these situations in which those metals would be introduced in the first place. And so, yeah, the assumption was that the, the vaccines that carried these metals that were preservative in them, and there were uh, there's different types of mercury, ethyl mercury and uh, methyl mercury, but also due to increased in pollution, that there would be these higher levels of this metal, and that therefore that was responsible for causing the autism. And the we go into this much more in depth in a interview that I recorded uh, that I've been working on the production for that should be coming out hopefully very soon. Depends on how much work I can get done. <laughs> for the next few weeks, um, but yeah, the, uh, I'm trying to trying to get that one turned around because it's a really really fantastic episode that we recorded and goes much more into depth about the history of this this whole controversy, if you can call it that. This yeah. whole um, uh, let's call it a travesty scam, yeah, a yeah. travesty and evil scam. All of it's horrible. Anyway, the point being that if the idea was that there was mercury that was causing the autism, that if you simply binded those mercury ions, um, those metals that were in the body by using this chelation process, that that would pull them out of the body. Wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Autism cured is sort of the idea. So we'll see with many different therapies that there's a bunch of different things that are being implemented at the same time. And this isn't, I guess, atypical and I I can't even put myself in the shoes of trying to understand what it's like to have a child diagnosed with something that there is no quick cure for no identified cure there's only solutions that are talked about and very very little information on what is evidence-based and like there's not great processes I'd say on getting this information into parents hands set up in the United States or in the world true and so in a sense, what we often see in the in the field is people are trying as much as they possibly can to provide for the person that's diagnosed with a disability, as as they should, right? Ethically, morally, as they should try to figure out what to do. Sure. Um, now, what happens, though, is, is we have this whole mess of what is working, um, what is being implemented, and then trying to identify the, the sources that are actually effective. So we do this in research in our journals. Um, but we also have to do this. Uh, we also, I guess, encounter this when parents are trying to figure out what to work on themselves. And so we see a, a whole lot of propagated stuff on like uh, in this example, like the chelation therapy was, you know, maybe the end all be all cure for a student um, or a child diagnosed with autism. But correct me if I'm wrong here, Abraham, there's always some coupled like additional effective therapy that's been going on in these. Yeah, I mean, that's so the the question of why would anybody do this and why does it appear that sometimes this works is that, as you just mentioned, that that they were doing, they were often doing things that worked and doing chelation therapy. And so it looked like, well, we're doing these two things and my child is improving, even though only one of those things was the actual ingredient. It's sort of like, why why stop doing them both if we know that at least one of them is working and maybe they're both working together? And so that might be why it appeared that it was effective. And, you know, of course, this process is extremely effective in its original intended use, which is the removal of toxic metals in the body. So, like, we know that the process does work for its intended use. And 
um, it's understandable to think that therefore it is also going to be effective for something else if that hypothesis that the cause is those heavy metals as well. And, and so again, there's sort of this what might be appear to be a logical link as well as the observable um, improvements that are noticed. It's just that those improvements are not due to the chelation as one might assume. And on top of that, there's a whole host of side effects. Yeah, so let's just kind of quickly run through the list. We've got uh, there's a burning sensation when injected into the vein at the at the injection site, fever and chills, headache, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, convulsions or seizures, fall in blood pressure, breathlessness or tightness in the chest, and get respiratory failure, low blood calcium, irregular heartbeat or cardiac arrhythmias, skin rash, eczema, severe hypersensitivity, uh, reactions may lead to anaphylactic shock or death. We have depression of bone marrow leading to low counts of white and red blood cells, kidney damage, liver damage, brain damage, vitamin and nutrient deficiencies, which these occur because the process takes them out along with the metals. Yeah, the uh, chelating agent pulls out vitamins and nutrients as well as any metals that may be in the body. And I think, I guess one point I wanted to make earlier that I, I forgot I wanted to make was that we kind of naturally have some amount of metal in our body that is that is just part of our our diet. Like for example, we need magnesium as part of our nutrients. That's something that we consume and we you use that in our body. And there are other metals as well. That uh, iron is something that we we get from our food that goes into our body. And they come in these small amounts, and they aren't like flakes of metal. It's a form of that metal that one um, that we use as as part of our body. So a chelating agent will bind to. A, a lot of different types of metals in a lot of different ways. And sometimes those are metals that we need. So when you have too much metal in the body, this is the whole idea of like everything in moderation, which is kind of a crazy idea, but there it is. There is a right amount of certain metals to be in the body. And so the chelating process can just utterly strip those metals out of the body. Um, and then of course, when there is too much metal in the body, it can take those out as well. But like when there's too much, they need to be out. And when there's the right amount, they need to stay in. So there's that. So there were a number of chelation therapy studies that were out in uh, being conducted because, of course, if that hypothesis was correct, then this certainly should be something that should just become routine implementation of a standard therapeutic protocol for someone who has a diagnosis in which it was presumed that that cause of that diagnosis could be attributed in some way to like a metal toxicity. Um, the National Institute of Health had a study that was investigating mercury chelation to treat autism and um, that this was resulting in cognitive impairments. There was some deaths resulting from hypocalcemia after administration of the one of the more, most common chelating agents called EDTA. And another study was investigating treating lead poisoning that was attended to cure autism. And this resulted in uh, nutrition deficiencies. It decreased the calcium in the body and led to deficiencies as that. So this resulted in nutrition de deficiencies and some death did not cure autism. Another study was investigating removing mercury from the body. So we just talked about lead. Uh, we mentioned before mercury. And again, this is in hopes of curing autism. This is again going after the EDTA, which stands for ethylene diamine tetraacetic acid. And this was used 
as a chelation agent that was injected into the body. Uh, this one resulted on occasion in heart attack and death and did not cure autism. Um, there was a lawsuit father that was, was suing doctors who used this therapy and he called this a fraudulent autism therapy. Uh, James Komen, father of a seven-year-old son with autism, and he was suing Dr. Anjum Usman and Dr. Daniel Rosignol, and this took place in, um, in Naperville, Illinois. They had their uh, clinic there, and he filed a lawsuit when they prescribed these expensive treatments that had no proof of benefits and did not mention the health risks associated with those treatments, and so that was also a um, another case that was going on. So like, these are just a whole bunch of examples of instances in which these, these things have come up. And, you know, uh, a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll point to you cherry pick that example of the child who died from chelation because not that many children died from chelation. And while it's true that like only a portion of the children who received chelation died, the important point to make about that is that a portion of children who received this therapy died, and that's not okay. And, and, and it's, it's not doing what it's seeking out to do in the first place either. Yes, that was exactly what I was going to say next. It's like it's not, it's not helping with their autism treatment in any way. And it's extremely expensive. So th- there's a lot of things. So I guess that kind of just leads us right into... Yeah, it's kind of a good segue to hop into the ethical considerations here, right? Yeah, and so... the this is sort of looking at just how would we describe this in terms of what parts of any ethical code would be violated by use of this treatment. A complete and utter failure to adhere to any sort of uh, commitment to evidence-based practice, first of all. Yeah, yeah uh, there, I think there's, totally. There's nothing, there's not only not evidence for it, but there's evidence in the contrary for it, it you know, hurting and damaging um, folks. And if anybody's interested uh a great resource and website that describes this a little bit more, including some of the research studies, but in a nice consumable, like parent-friendly way, there is the Association for Science and Autism Treatment. It is asatonline.org, A-S-A-T online.org will get you there. And they provide really good comprehensive studies, like I said, that are you can dive into if you want, or you can just kind of get the gist to start to sort out what is an evidence-based practice and will it work or not. So if you're suggesting something or if you've heard about something, great resource where you can go out, they independently evaluate the research, put out some white papers and publications around what actually is evidence-based and what does that mean? Yeah, actually, that's a great point. Um, that's It has been a really cool resource for when people will come up and have asked me because these things sort of pop up all the time to borrow from the movie Mulan, like daisies, you know, they're just sort of popping up of this pseudoscience here, the pseudoscience there. And this website does a pretty good job. It's sort of like that quack watch website. Yeah, I believe there's now over 180 fad treatments for autism. Uh, well, it looks like we have 180 episodes to do that <laughs> <laughs> so at some point down the road. Not that this is just a, a show about fad treatments for autism, but just, you know, taking on some of the myths that exist, why they exist, and and things that have sort of crept in. And I, I think it's really important to debunk and educate people as much as possible about the dangers of some of the things that are out there. So that, that sure. website is really cool about that. Yeah, and on to get back to the ethical considerations, like we have a duty to act in the best interest of the patient. So implementing anything that we know is not in the best interest of the patient is again violation of an ethical code. Yeah, exactly. I think that and again, making the point that like these are really ethical considerations that should belong to most 
professional fields that deal with any kind of human services and like therapeutic intervention. So these are these are general descriptions of what those ethical codes are. And some of these are written specifically as codes into like an ethical, uh, a book of ethical guidelines. And some of these are just more sort of a philosophy that's adopted by those positions. But either way, I generated this list to generally describe what is uh, considered an ethical position to have inside of one of those therapeutic settings. Another one is the the failure to, the, the patient has a right to effective treatment. And that the, using chelation therapy is a failure to fulfill on their right to receive effective treatment. And then lastly, a failure to conduct appropriate assessments and to determine intervention. I don't even, I mean, how do you assess for this? You have autism, <laughs> so we're going to put you in the chelation therapy uh, Well, process. I think that you could actually assess for heavy metal poisoning. Like that's, you know, how, how would they go like, about it? Like does that actually happen? Or is it just no, an assumption? No, that... That's what I'm saying is like, that's why this is an ethical violation is because nobody is, is assessing for heavy metal poisoning before they go about doing this intervention. And if they did, 99% of the time, they would not find anything. And the 1% of the time that they did would have nothing to do with autism. Yeah. So 100% of the time, this is not an effective or appropriate procedure specifically for dealing with autism. And that's not to say that a child with autism you know, is impossible, they can't have any kind of metal poisoning that they would need chelation therapy for, but simply an autism diagnosis by itself does not warrant chelation as an intervention for that. Again, if they do get metal poisoning, then that might be the way you want to go. But like just because they have autism, that's not an appropriate intervention at all. All right. That brings us around to the take home points. I think we can keep this one pretty succinct and clear. Yeah, I think so. So um, hit, hit the first one, Abraham. Yeah, so I mean, the first thing, as we sort of mentioned, is that chelation is an approved treatment, but only for heavy metal poisoning, any you know forms of metal poisoning. There is currently no scientific for the basis of using chelation treatments for any other disorders, autism specifically, but really any mental health disorders more generally. And then going back to that list, also not effective for things like Alzheimer's or cancer, clogged arteries, multiple sclerosis. Like this is a, a gigantic list of things that there's just no way uh, that those could all be attributable to the same source. And, uh, and this is not an appropriate intervention for those. On top of it, it's an extremely expensive uh, process. So not only is it ineffective, you're paying a ton of resources for something that's not going to work as well, making it almost seem like untenable i think and like even more wooey probably to some people right oh i wish i had the money to get that special treatment i like wooey wooey <laughs> yeah. and with all of that it exposes patients to health risks unnecessary health risks without really any potential benefit for having received that therapy again outside of the context of having of metal poisoning and metal toxicity all right, so there's no benefits whatsoever unless it's for the specific ones in which it was originally identified for and there's evidence for. It's extremely expensive, and so if you're even going to be using it, it should be for those reasons. And again, there is no no, no evidence that it is working to help cure autism, and the benefits, the downsides are way, way, way worse. There should be no reason that this sort of thing is being experienced by anybody with autism. Yes. I mean... Again, unless they have metal toxicity. Yes, exactly. But yeah, just that's it. Yeah, it's the only reason. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> and that should be. And again, 
going back to ethical code, that should be specifically diagnosed as having metal poisoning, and that yes. that would be, therefore, an effective intervention for dealing with that. Yes. Fantastic. So, as always, send in your uh, likes, shares, comments, hate mail, whatever, into all the places that we'll list after this. Uh, super appreciative you guys can go out and give a review. If you enjoyed this, tell somebody about us, and I think that's it. Cool. As always, this is Ryan O. This is Abraham. We are out. listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at wwd podcast on your favorite social media platforms you can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Actually, I do some real vocal warm-ups. I wake up and I sound like I'm trying to be very white. Me, 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 me. <laughs> Ow, now, brown cow. Ow, now, brown cow. Ow, now, brown cow. Ow, now, brown cow. I know, I always do. The quick the, fox jumps over the... Whatever it is. I always do the ones from Anchorman. Yeah. The, the arsonist has oddly shaped feet. Unique New York. Unique New York. Unique Oh, let's get human, this baby rolling. A human torch was denied a bank loan. Okay. All right. It's cold. And here we are. <clears throat> okay. Three, two, one, go.